Good morning. Beautiful day. Yeah, we're raising uh, Noah Kayler. I am in a baby next month. That'll be an even dozen. And with Esther and Reagan here, uh, it's just a real blessing. Uh, and I'm rejoicing that I'm still walking today after being in Mortal Kombat yesterday with paintball. But uh, today our primary text is Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are they, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, and in our study of the Beatitudes up to now, we've stated that these qualities are meant for believers. They're to be pursued by all believers, male and female. And this message today, I think, will largely apply to both. Uh, But I'm going to lean more on the guys today, not because meekness in gals is unimportant, but if I can subtly suggest, guys can be knuckleheads. And... uh, a little extra emphasis is, is in order. Uh, the world says nice guys finish last. And in a sense, they get it right. Uh, I've entitled this message, Blesses Are the Meek, for they shall die. And we'll get back to that later. Uh, but in modern English, the word meek renders up Caricatures like Casper Milk Toast and words like weak, passive, uh, wallflower, doormat, and frankly, a wimp. Uh, to be sure, meekness is not a concept worldly men readily embrace. But think about it. Over time, words change, tend to change in their connotations. Uh, how they're applied and understood. So the question is not what do we understand meekness to be today, but what does the Bible in the original language intend to convey? The, the Greek word praos means humble, gentle, patient, possessing self-control to resist reaction. Uh, when criticized, reviled, or challenged, a uh, praos person has the security, the internal fortitude to resist retaliation, uh, resentment, or vengeance. The attitude of such a person requires strong self-control and a quiet, willing submission to God. In fact, biblical meekness goes beyond self-control to power under God's control. It's sometimes called gentle strength. Our sin nature, on the other hand, leads us to stubborn, willful, and carnal rebellion and defensive reaction to protect our own dignity. A close synonym to meek is gentle. Again, not a word we hear on most beer commercials. This concept has lost much of its classical meaning just in the last generation. Raise your hand if you really think you have a clear idea of the concept that we we have in the words lady and gentleman. (laughs) Well, 
seeing no hands, or very few. And maybe you think that's a trick question. It really isn't, uh, unless I miss my guess. Only a few of the older folks here really understand that the word gentleman, as used today in a place called a gentleman's club, is anything but that. Uh, Now, does the word lady mean anything more today than an older or a mature woman? I think we have some concept of what it is to be manly, but have we forgotten what it means to be gentlemanly? Paul tells us that there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And in saying that, he's not saying that there is no difference. Rather, that God loves, draws, and uses us equally. Yet, some modern dress and lifestyles make women look more like men and men like women. In fact, just yesterday, I was hugged by a guy in a skirt. Isn't that true, Stan? Well, in, in his defense, Stan was wearing a kilt, kind of a manly skirt, I guess. Uh, but if you read your Bibles, you'll find that this blurring of the genders is contrary to God's plan. God made men and women very differently in many ways. And frankly, I say, thank God. You know, viva la difference. On the other hand, we see uh, some reaction from some males uh, to this blending in our culture, which is equally unbiblical. In order to distinguish themselves, they revert to a kind of machismo, if that's the word, making it clear by their hard drinking and their obsession with sports and their conquest of women that I'm not one of those. Now, this is big in our culture. When some men have become more self-centered and feminized and others have become more self-centered and brutish, Uh, as we evolve socially towards a more self-serving and licentious and rights-demanding culture, We've lost our concept of ladylike and gentlemanly deportment that our parents and grandparents pretty much took for granted. When was the last time you heard a message to our daughters from any targeted commercial or any Hannah Montana-like character to be more ladylike? Now, I'm not an expert and I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the consistent message really instead is, hey, catch the eyes of the boys by showing off your body with this style. Am I wrong? Uh, We fathers also would be well advised to train our sons less about being the high scorer on the field and more about being a gentleman. 
Today, the label of gentleman is so generalized that really the only qualification is to be a male. Uh, But in the past, it had, and for Christians, it should have today a more exclusive meaning and really a much higher standard. And it means more than standing when a woman or an older person enters the room taking off your hat when you go inside, holding the door for women and children, or just being courteous and polite. Does anybody remember any of those quaint customs? It's really a whole approach toward life. In 1899, the Baltimore Sun, a newspaper, conducted a competition for the best definition of the true gentleman. The winning submission was from John Walter Wayland. And it was reprinted in the Baltimore Sun and many other publications. Eventually was printed in the manual for the U.S. Naval Academy for those who wish to be officers and gentlemen. Eventually it became part of the tradition of the uh, college fraternity where Steve Iliff and I were roommates. Now, there's no suggestion of any Christian origin in this uh, piece, but if you listen, see how many biblical concepts you notice. While Steve and I didn't really see a lot of these in the frat house, uh, at least we were required to memorize the following. The true gentleman is the man whose conduct proceeds from goodwill and an acute sense of propriety and whose self-control is equal to all emergencies, who does not make the poor man conscious of his poverty, the obscure man of his obscurity, or any man of his inferiority or deformity, who is himself humbled if necessity compels him to humble another, who does not flatter wealth, cringe before power, or boast of his own possessions or achievements, who speaks with frankness, but always with sincerity and sympathy, whose deed follows his word, who thinks of the rights and feelings of others rather than his own and who appears well in any company, a man with whom honor is sacred and virtue safe. Now, another little poll here. Parents, if you had to choose between the guy we just read about who genuinely believed and followed those traits uh, and the captain of the football team who's the valedictorian whose only claim to spirituality was that he had all the latest Christian music on on this box connected to his ear. Which would you choose, which would you rather see on your doorstep to come courting your daughter? How many would choose the gentleman? Young men, please take note. Now, I've reprinted the true gentleman on the back of the handout today and added a few relevant verses, and I'm sure you can find more. But I would suggest 
to the, uh, the parents out here that it might be a good study to help your sons see and study what a gentleman is and your daughters be able to recognize one when they show up. There are biblical examples of gentlemen. Uh, in Romans 12, describes Moses as the most meek man upon the face of the earth. And what did he do? He just led about two million stubborn Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land. David was a great warrior. But he also j- demonstrated gentlemanly lack of vig- vengeance. When as king and when he had the power and the opportunity to take revenge upon those who hated him and wanted to kill him. And finally, Jesus uh, is described in Matthew 21 as the king who comes unto you meek upon an ass. Yet, as a true gentleman, he faced persecution patiently and sacrificed all for you and me. So how do we distinguish a true gentleman from a mere natural man? Actually, the contrast is stark. In Galatians 5, it gives us a laundry list of ways. Starting in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, and just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's a great, great phrase. That always intrigues me. Against such things there is no law. It, it seems to me that Paul is trying to say here that Regardless of how much your opponent or the adversary disagrees with you, you will never go wrong. You will always gain respect. No one will ever criticize you for demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. Meekness only comes when a Christian is Spirit-controlled. How does one acquire meekness, become a true gentleman, Well, we get one view here in James 3. You see, one of the easiest things to use is our mouths. And we use it all too often and without forethought. And in James 3, it starts off with, in verses 3 and 4, it tells us the tongue is analogous first to a rudder, small by comparison, but it guides the whole ship or to a small bit in the horse's mouth. And it controls the whole horse. And then in verses 5 through 8, despite its size, the tongue 
is extremely difficult to control. So much so that it may defile the whole body. And its wickedness literally comes from hell. In verses 9 through 12, it goes into the, you know, the hypocrisy, the incongruity that, that we, all, we all hear and we sometimes speak when we, there is blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth. It's like fresh water coming from a bitter source or fig trees bearing olive berries. How do you actually handle the tongue or control any part of you that's out of control? Is it bits and rudders or chains or what? Well, verse 13 gives the answer. The wise and understanding should show his deeds by good conduct in the gentleness of wisdom. Meekness or gentility is best acquired by knowing and applying God's wisdom in our responses, in words and actions, to difficulties. Again, meekness is best acquired by knowing God's wisdom, His Word, and applying it in our responses, both in words and actions, to the difficulties we encounter. And in order to respond in wisdom, we've got to be well acquainted with it. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen... The key is to read our Bibles daily. Something you hear around here often. How can we learn wisdom from the example of Christ? Christ received from his Father every word, thought, action, attitude, and motive that he had. In John 5, verse 30, he says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of my Father. And then in, in uh, Matthew 11, Christ describes himself as a gentleman, starting in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When two oxen are yoked together, they learn how to work as a team. The lead ox provides the direction and sets the pace, and the, the, the other one yields whatever it wants to do, and, and follows the lead. It feels every impulse and movement of the leader and responds immediately. The team members learn how to know and anticipate the responses of the other and how best to pull together in order to multiply their, their productivity. When we take on the yoke of Christ, we yield our rights to what we please and we learn the wishes of Christ, our leader. If Christians take on a yoke other than Christ, just like putting together an ox and a donkey, they pull against each other, and the yoke rubs them both. Our quest for being ladies and gentlemen comes down to knowing and following Christ.
I wrestled in high school and went to a couple of um, summer camps, summer wrestling camps. And to do that, I had to go to Iowa State University and the University of Iowa because there were no such camps in Kansas or Missouri or Nebraska. You see, uh, wrestling is to Iowa what football is to Nebraska and basketball is to Kansas. It's huge. And that's where the action was. Just last month, Joel Northrup, a homeschooled sophomore uh, with a 35-4 and four, uh, record in wrestling uh, for Linmar High School, gave up the chance to win the state title in his weight class when he was matched in his first round of the state tournament with Cassie Herkelman, one of, two, one of the two first girls to make the state wrestling tournament in its 85-year history. In a brief statement issued, uh, Northrop said he decided to default on his match with Herkelman because he didn't think boys and girls should compete in wrestling. He said, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Cassie and the other girl, Megan, and their accomplishments. However, wrestling is a combat sport, and it can get violent at times. As a matter of conscience and my faith, I do not believe that it is appropriate for a boy to engage a girl in this manner. Uh, this conviction, uh, which led to his default in the, the uh, state tournament, started a heated debate about modern-day gender blending in sports with, in terms of the, the, the responses I saw, by far most saying that Joel was right and he was a gentleman for his sacrifice in giving up the opportunity for a state wrestling crown in order to honor women, or that is, ladies. Another example is a guy named Patrick Tillman. As a uh, football player, he was distinguished with an appetite for rugged play and intelligence. But at five foot eight and about 200 pounds, he was an undersized, to say the least, linebacker at Arizona State University. And he was, but he was the Pac-10 Player of the Year on defense in 1997. After college, he ended up on the roster of the Arizona Cardinals. But when another team made a much more lucrative offer to draw him away, he turned it down. His agent said, this is very consistent with how he conducts his life. Patty is the type of guy who is very smart, but very loyal. I remember when the Rams made their offer, he said, no, I want to stay with the Cardinals. If I have to play for the minimum, in other words, take the minimum amount that they could pay the players, I don't care. He passed up millions. He's always had a blueprint for what he wants to do. He just viewed life through a different prism than a lot of other people do. Then came 9-11. Patrick married his high school sweetheart and then went to his team to say that he was going to join the Army Rangers with his brother. Pat Patrick's rationale for this was, well, my grandfather was at Pearl Harbor, my dad in Vietnam, I have done nothing. 
After making that decision to join the Army, his coach at the, at, with the Cardinals, uh, Dave McGinnis, said Tillman was serious and deliberate. He, it's very personal, and I honor that. I honor the integrity of that. He feels very strongly about it. <clears throat> in April of 2004, near a village in Afghanistan, Patrick's convoy came under attack, and he was mortally wounded. Now, you may have heard of the controversy concerning his death. Patrick may have been a casualty of this oxymoron we call friendly fire. Uh, we had some of that yesterday. Uh, in the confusion and heat of battle, there are, it's sometimes combatants will fire upon their own. Patrick, uh, who was as loyal as a brother, may have died as a result of fratricide, which means death by a brother. It appears that the army tried to cover up how he died and to make it look like he died by enemy fire instead. And that became the, the story, the cover-up, when in reality the biggest story was the important example of loyalty and sacrifice and gentlemanliness that Patrick displayed. Now the world looks at Patrick and as an anomaly. They don't know what to do with him. Is he a hero or is he a fool? His coach said, I don't know that I've ever met a more dedicated person in my life. Senator John McCain from Arizona said, There is in Pat Tillman's example, in his unexpected choice of duty to his country over the riches and other comforts of celebrity, and in his humility, such an inspiration to all of us to reclaim the essential public spiritedness of Americans that many of us in low moments had worried was no longer our common distinguishing trait. For Christians, Patrick's actions of giving up everything the world had to offer out of loyalty and love for his family and country exemplify true meekness. What we should be doing for a God who created us, gave us everything that we have and are, and then sacrificed his own son that we might spend eternity with him. In fact, you could say, blessed are the meek, for they shall die. Now, why do, what do I mean by that? Uh, last month, in reference to mourning over our sin, we talked about breaking up the fallow ground of our hearts. Well, let's go with another agrarian example here. Death is necessary for both wheat and meekness. In John 12, verse 24, Jesus says, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Inside each grain of wheat is a wheat germ designed to grow into a wheat stalk and produce the fruit of more wheat. For this to occur, the grain must be buried, and then it starts the process of breaking open the outer coat of the grain. The grain of wheat must have its body broken and literally die itself in order to produce more wheat. This break, breaking open allows for moisture and oxygen to enter in, nourishing the wheat germ in the process we call germination. 
Now, Paul in Galatians 2.20 said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But for the Christ in me to bear the fruit of meekness, I must die to self daily. I've got to stop focusing on what I want and my importance. And I've got to start seeking God's best and His purpose in all areas of the life He has given me. In Luke 9, Jesus said in verse 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So, let's get down to practical application here. How can we become meek? I suggest we follow the leader. In Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, it says, or Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. Based upon this viewpoint, Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who became our sacrificial lamb of God, yielded his right first to a good reputation by all appearances born in illegitimacy into poverty. He associated with sinners like tax collectors and harlots, even allowed one of them to wash his feet. Yet he received a name above every name. God really wants us to be less concerned about what other people think about us and more concerned about representing Christ to those who don't respect us. He gave up his right to be served as a master. In John 13, we see the account of, he, of, of Christ washing the feet of these keystone cops called his disciples as an example. He said, I have given you an example that you should do this just as I have done it to you. He gave up his right to physical comfort. In Mark 1, uh, we see that Christ had a strenuous schedule. He didn't even have a home says this, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He gave up his right to make his own decisions. Now picture Christ in the garden, knowing what would happen in just a few hours, knowing 
what he faced, literally sweating blood, pleading as a full man, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The attitude that destroys meekness is pride, which is preserving for ourselves the right to make the final decisions. By yielding this right, and only by yielding this right, do we conquer the root of pride. Now, as I look around this room, uh, it is hard to think of anyone here, other than myself, who has a glaring need for death to self, by appearances anyway. But I suspect that each of us has some, uh, some distraction from God's best, whether it's anger or greed or lust or entertainment or laziness or the deadly pride. Flatly, as believers, we are called to be Christ-like ladies and gentlemen, to fight with power under God's control. Just as a grain of wheat must be buried and died to produce the harvest of its fruit, we must die to self in order to produce the fruit of meekness. Lord God, we are humbled. Lord, we understand that uh, your word brings us the truth, sometimes not what we want to hear. And we pray, Lord, that we would pay attention, that we would learn to be meek, to be strong but under your control, to be true ladies and gentlemen. Lord God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of the saints here in Lion and Lamb and, and frankly, in the, the church at large, Father, because it is through this attitude that we will be effective. And without this attitude, we can do nothing for you. Father, I pray that you would continue to work on our hard heads and our hearts and soften us to the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light. We give you all praise and glory now, Father. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, amen.